What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You've got friends that like podcasts. I know that. Maybe you like podcasts. Maybe you want something from your favorite podcast. Go to Podswag. They've got merch from all your favorite podcasts like WTF, Comedy Bang Bang, and of course, your most favoritist podcast of all, Obscure. They've got posters, shirts, hoodies, pins, mugs, stickers, so much more. Plus, if you're shopping for a podcast-loving friend and you're not sure which, which thing to get, grab a gift card just in time for the holidays. Pick one up and start shopping today at podswag.com slash gift card. That's podswag.com slash gift card. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, Michael Ian Black. I am your friend. I am your reader. I am your mansplainer-in-chief of Jude the Obscure. And the reason that I am a mansplainer is because, as I have often described myself on this podcast and in other places, I am a legitimate idiot. I have never read this book before. There's a lot of this book that I just kind of say I understand and will expound on at great length about things that I know about which I know nothing. And that is, that is mansplaining at its core. So that's what I'm doing. I'm mansplaining Thomas Hardy to you. But finding things along the way, little nuggets that we can all pick up and put in our pockets and take with us on our journeys, wherever our journeys may take us. Jude Fowley's journey has taken him, of course, to Christminster, where he has been laboring, literally laboring, to make a life for himself as a stonemason and metaphorically laboring to achieve his grander goal, which is to, to, uh, to get an education, to achieve something which has escaped even his hero, Mr. Phillotson. He wants to rise above, rise above the humbleness, the obscurity of his birth and of his circumstances. He has not succeeded, of course, to this point, which has provided endless mirth and delight for all of us listening, seeing him fumble and flail and slip on banana peels of his own making and the makings of others. It seems as if fate itself is conspired against Jude. But in the last episode, he had a lovely recognition, a lovely recognition that the people around him there in Christminster, the people that he doesn't even see on a day-to-day basis, are the real heart and soul of the place. And he himself is one of those people. He himself, I would venture to guess, is unseen even to himself, which is to say the people that he sees, that he looks up to, the people um, to whom he has written letters, for God's sake, are the learned 
citizens of Christminster, the scholars, the students, the teachers and faculty, the professors, the deans, the headmasters, and what have you. Those are the people that he has long admired, the people bent over books by candlelight, translating the Greek, translating the Latin, those who are attempting to find the divine in the pages of ancient texts. But Jude has just now realized that the divine can be found everywhere in the little comic songs that people sing, in the toils that they undertake, in the simple exchanges of goods, of hellos, of uh, well wishes and merriment. It's there that the spark of the divine may live, but Jude has been blind to it. And it calls to mind to me something that we talked about in the very beginning of the book, and which I think has been a kind of quiet running theme throughout, which seems to be Thomas Hardy's skepticism, distrust, and maybe even quiet loathing of religion, or at least the Christian religion as a whole. Now, I don't know if this is an accurate description. I know nothing about Thomas Hardy. I said that at the beginning. I'm mansplaining here. I know nothing. But from the very beginning, when he talked about how the original church had been torn down in Mary Green, until now, when he is recognizing that the divine can be found not in the great facades of the colleges there, but in the day-to-day interactions of human beings, it seems to me that Thomas Hardy is kind of exploring a humanism that flies in the face of probably the conventional wisdom and, and the conventional mores of his time. I don't know. Again, I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But it's that humanism that speaks to me as a reader. And even though fate is, uh, is throwing down banana peels left and right for him to slip on, when he falls, Jew does not just lay there splayed out on the ground, concussed. Instead, He picks himself up and seems to find uh, new circumstances, seems to find new ways to endure, knowing full well that as he takes another step, there's going to be another banana peel, but somehow persevering. So in that way, Jude uh, reminds me again of Job, the biblical character, whose faith is so tested. And so this humanism has at its core, I think, a deeper appreciation for the divine than the kind of the faith that the the ecclesiastical scholar might have, which is a kind of abstract faith. There's something richer, I think, in picking yourself up and moving forward than there is in transliterating the word of God. Okay, so here we are at chapter seven of part the second of Jude the Obscure, and Sue Brighthead, his cousin, his love, is off with Mr. Phillotson, his hero. We don't know quite what their circumstances are in this moment, but they're not good for Jude, whatever they are. And Jude is, he's at a, once again, he's at a crossroads because he's forever at a crossroads. Chapter seven. The stroke of scorn relieved his mind, and the next morning he laughed at his self-conceit. Oh, because in the right at the end of the previous chapter, he had scrawled with a lump of chalk. He wrote along the wall, I have understanding as well as you. He's, he's now saying this to essentially all of academia. He's saying, I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you, yet who knoweth Not such things as these. I'm sorry, yea, who knoweth not such things as these from the book of, guess what, Job. So he's saying, fuck you. Like, you're no better than me. That's what he's saying. Could have just said that. The stroke of scorn relieved his mind, and the next morning he laughed at his self-conceit. But the laugh was not a healthy one. He reread the letter from the master, which was the letter telling him, yeah, don't bother coming to college. (laughs) You don't belong here, boy. 
and the wisdom in its lines, which had at first exasperated him, chilled and depressed him now. He saw himself as a fool indeed. Deprived of the objects of both intellect and emotion, he could not proceed to his work. Whenever he felt reconciled to his fate as a student, there came to disturb his calm his hopeless relations with Sue, that the one affined soul he had ever met was lost to him through his marriage, returned upon him with cruel persistency, till, unable to bear it longer, he again rushed for distraction to the real Christminster life. He now sought it out in an obscure and low-sealed tavern up a court which was well known to certain worthies of the place, and in brighter times would have interested him simply by its quaintness. Here he sat more or less all the day, convinced that he was at bottom a vicious character of whom it was hopeless to expect anything." So the first couple paragraphs of chapter seven have him laughing at his own little jape to the colleges and then that laughter quickly turning to alcoholism at Cheers. He's now become, uh, well, kind of a, a kind of a combination of Norm and Cliff at Cheers, where uh, it, it's, it's an obscure tavern where everybody knows your name, uh, says well known to certain worthies of the place, but unlike Norm, Jude is kind of the cliff in that he's a little bit of a know-it-all. And he is. I mean, he does know it all. He knows a lot. He knows more than he should, more than is good for him. When we saw this coming chapters ago, it was intimated that he might turn to drink to relieve the tedium, the self-scorn and hopelessness of his situation. And now it seems that he's done exactly that. I hope when, when he comes in, Everybody goes, Jude! But somehow I doubt that. In the evening, the frequenters of the house dropped in one by one, Jude still retaining his seat in the corner, just like Norm, though his money was all spent, and he had not eaten anything the whole day except a biscuit. He surveyed his gathering companions with all the equanimity and philosophy of a man who has been drinking long and slowly, and made friends with several. To wit, Tinker Taylor, a decayed church ironmonger who appeared to have been of a religious turn in earlier years, but was somewhat blasphemous now. Also, a red-nosed auctioneer. Also, two gothic masons like himself, called Uncle Jim and Uncle Joe. There were present, too, some clerks and a gown and surplus maker's assistant, two ladies who sported moral characters of various depths of shade, according to their company, nicknamed Bower Obliss and Freckles, some horsey men in the know of betting circles, a traveling actor from the theater, and two devil-may-care young men who proved to be gownless undergraduates. They had slipped in by stealth to meet a man about bullpups and stayed to drink and smoke short pipes with the racing gents aforesaid, looking at their watches every now and then. So we've assembled a real motley crew here at Cheers. Just a bunch of ne'er-do-wells and drunks. Some uh, blaspheming people, some ladies of reckless character, a some gamblers, uh, an actor, of course, uh, because as we know, they are people of low moral turpitude, and some undergrads who are slumming it there because they went to get some bullpups that they were probably going to fight to the death. And then Jude himself, starving, slowly drinking himself to death at the bar. And yet, I have to say, I am more compelled by this cast of characters than I have been about any to this point except for Vilner, the traveling, the traveling quack doctor who just goes about prattling on about his, his special medicines. So we're creating a kind of, we've gone from cheers now to a kind of mammoth-esque assemblage of ne'er-do-wells. Um, it's a little bit like Eugene O'Neill in The Iceman Cometh. I mean, this is just a classic setting for trouble. 
It starts with T and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. Stands for pool. And to quote Harold Hill, it is time to sell some shit on Obscure. This holiday season, Away has the perfect gift for everyone on your list. Away creates thoughtful standards for modern travel with universal pieces that reflect your personal travel style and make every trip more seamless. They have considered all types of travelers in making their carry-on bags, which are available in two sizes, and come with an optional ejectable battery that charges your phone up to five times. Plus, they feature four 360-degree spinner wheels, a removable, washable laundry bag, a TSA-approved combination lock, and an interior compression system that lets you pack more. Shop the Away carry-ons in Away's signature German polycarbonate or aluminum alloy. Both are guaranteed for life. Now, I have the one with the polycarbonate, and I have to tell you, when I got it, I thought to myself, oh dear, this is going to be heavy because it looks so sturdy and durable. I pick it up. Guys, it's, it, it, it's like picking up a marshmallow with your finger. It's so light and airy. The compression thing, it works great. You can pack more because it just kind of, it kind of squeezes the life out of your clothes. Keeps them refreshed, of course, but puts them, it just squeezes them. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash obscure and use promo code obscure during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash obscure and use promo code obscure during checkout for $20 off a suitcase because this season, everyone wants to get away. Hi, we're back in Chapter 7. The conversation waxed general. Christminster society was criticized, the dons, magistrates, and other people in authority being sincerely pitied for their shortcomings, while opinions on how they ought to conduct themselves and their affairs to be properly respected were exchanged in a large-minded and disinterested manner. Jude Fowley, with the self-conceit, effrontery, and aplomb of a strong-brained fellow in liquor, (laughs) threw in his remarks somewhat peremptorily, and his aims having been what they were for so many years, everything the others said turned upon his tongue by a sort of mechanical craze to the subject of scholarship and study." the extent of his own learning being dwelt upon with an insistence that would have appeared pitiable to himself in his sane hours. I don't care a damn, he was saying, for any provost, warden, principal, fellow, or cursed master of arts in the university. What I know is that I'd lick them on their own ground if they'd give me a chance and show them a few things they are not up to yet. Hear, hear! said the undergraduates from the corner where they were talking privately about the pups. He always was found of books, I've heard, said Tinker Taylor, and I don't doubt what you state. Now, with me, twas different. I always saw there was more to be learned outside a book than in, and I took my steps accordingly, or I shouldn't have been the man I am. <laughs> I love these people. I feel like this is where Jude belongs, just sodden at the bar, railing against the world. It's what I want from Jude. I want him to just erupt volcanically at all the sins of the world arrayed uh, uh, before him, all the problems that he has had to shoulder. I, I, I want him to be miserable in this moment because there's something joyful in his misery because he's right because he's right he his his even in his drunkenness which would be embarrassing to him uh, in his saner moments he is speaking the truth which is that he could go toe to toe with any of these motherfuckers from the college he could 
If given the chance, nobody works harder than poor Jude Fowley. Nobody appreciates education more than he does. Nobody has spent more sweat and tears. He he invented a self-driving horse cart, for God's sake, so that he could learn when doing his bakery rounds. Like he's done everything he possibly could, and yet the doors to the university have not been opened, and he is motherfucking right to be pissed off at the world. And uh, Tinker Taylor's with him. The undergraduates are with him. The undergraduates are condescending, let's be honest. They're condescending to him. Rich kids, Right. Because you remember, Jude is basically Will Hunting from Goodwill Hunting. And then you got these rich kids from the university going, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, you're smarter than all of them, I bet there, Shakespeare. And uh, he's going, how do you like them apples? You aim at the church, I believe, said Uncle Joe. If you are such a scholar as to pitch your hopes so high as that, why not give us a specimen of your scholarship? Can't say the creed in Latin, man? That was how they once put it to a chap down in my country. I should think so, said Jude haughtily. Not he. Like his conceit, screamed one of the ladies. They're saying, yeah, you're so smart. You're all talk. You're nothing. You can't even say the creed in Latin, can you, smarty pants? Just you shut up, Bower of Bliss, said one of the undergraduates. Silence. He drank off the spirits in his tumbler, rapped with it on the counter, and announced... The gentleman in the corner is going to rehearse the articles of his belief in the Latin tongue for the edification of the company. And this is that this is just that asshole from Boston just going, no, I'm with you. I'm with you, smart boy. I'm with you. You know what you're doing. I, I say you know what you're doing. He doesn't think Jude knows what he's doing, but he's trying to embarrass him. He's trying to embarrass him in front of Tinker Taylor and Uncle Joe and Uncle Jim and the ladies, for God's sake. And Jim says, I won't, said Jude. Yes, have a try, said the surplus maker. You can't, said Uncle Joe. Yes, he can, said Tinker Taylor. I'll swear I can, said Jude. Well, come now, stand me a small scotch cold and I'll do it straight off. That's a fair offer, said the undergraduate, throwing down the money for the whiskey. And these undergraduates, they're just going to have the biggest laugh at Jude, aren't they? These, these pipsqueaks, these nothings, these sons of privilege, these manner born, no good nicks, they're going to have a laugh at Jude's expense. But you and I know, dear listener, you and I know that Jude knows uh, the, 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 the articles of his belief probably backwards and forwards in the old tongue. He can probably do it standing on his head and he's going to show them a thing or two. The barmaid concocted the mixture with the bearing of a person compelled to live amongst animals of an inferior species, and the glass was handed across to Jude, who, having drunk the contents, stood up and began rhetorically without hesitation. And now Jude is going to show up, even me, your reader, because he now is going to do the articles of his belief in Latin, which I will not be able to reproduce. Uh, Credo in unum deum patrum omnipotentum, factorum coli et terrae visibilium omnium et invisibilium, which of course means... And here I refer to the notes, uh, which I have just found. This and the following Latin sentences are, as the second undergraduate says from the Nicene Creed in the Book of Common Prayer, it begins, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Uh, and appears in the communion service. The Apostles' Creed referred to by the second undergraduate is the short creed used at Matins and Evensong. I guess that's some Christian shit. I don't know. Good! Excellent Latin! cried one of the undergraduates, who, however, had not the slightest conception of a single word. See? This is what I'm talking about. This is the assholery with which Jude is confronted on a daily basis. These snooty undergraduates coming in there, trying to find dogs to fight, throwing around money to bar patrons to buy scotch whiskeys on a dare, and they don't even know, they don't even know whether he did it right or not. A silence reigned among the rest in the bar, and the maid stood still, Jude's voice echoing 
sonorously into the inner parlor where the landlord was dozing and bringing him out to see what was going on. Jude had declaimed steadily ahead and was continuing. Crucifixus etiam pro nobis sub ponto palato passus et sepulte est et resurrexit tertia die secundum scripturis. That's the Nicene, sneered the second undergraduate, and we wanted the apostles. <laughs> you fucker. <laughs> you didn't say so, says Jude, and every fool knows except you that the Nicene is the most historic creed. Let him go on, let him go on, said the auctioneer. And I like that the auctioneer repeats himself the way you would hope an auctioneer would. Let him go on, let him go on. But Jude's mind seemed to grow confused soon, and he could not go on. He put his hand to his forehead, and his face assumed an expression of pain. Give him another glass, then he'll fetch up and get through it, said Tinker Taylor. Somebody threw down three pence. The glass was handed. Jude stretched out his arm for it without looking, and having swallowed the liquor, went on in a moment in a revived voice, raising it as he neared the end with the manner of a priest leading a congregation. Et in spiritum sanctum, dominum et vivicantum, qui ex patra filoque procedet, qui com et filo simul adoretur, et confla conglorificator, qui locotus est per prophetas. It's a lot of Latin, and it goes on. Et unum catholicum, that probably means Catholic, and apostolicum, apostle, ecclesiam, ecclesiastical, confitior unum baptisma, baptism, in remissionum, I don't know, remission, pacatarum, which is a kind of a delicious Italian cheese that you grate and put on your spaghetti. Et expexo resurrectonum mortuorum, dead, something about dead. Et vitum ventore sacro, Amen. Well done, said several, enjoying the last word as being the first and only one. Fucking phone. It hasn't rang all day. All day. And then I sit down to read obscure and minor character landline. Pipes up. What about me? It says, what about me? What about you, landline? Shut up. Then Jude seemed to shake the fumes from his brain as he stared round upon them. You pack of fools, he cried. Which one of you knows whether I have said it or no? It might have been the rat catcher's daughter in double dutch for all that your besotted heads can tell. See what I have brought myself to. The crew I have come among they just bought you drinks, Jude. Don't be a dick. I understand, but don't be a dick. They just bought you a couple of drinks. Don't be a dick about it. The landlord, who had already had his license endorsed for harboring queer characters, feared a riot and came outside the counter. But Jude, in his sudden flash of reason, had turned in disgust and left the scene the door slamming with a dull thud behind him. He hastened down the lane and round into the straight broad street, which he followed till it merged in the highway. And all sound of his late companions had been left behind. Onward he still went, under the influence of a childlike yearning for the one being in the world to whom it seemed possible to fly, in unreasoning desire whose ill judgment was not apparent to him now. No? <laughs> in the course of an hour, when it was between 10 and 11 o'clock, he entered the village of Lumsden in reaching the cottage. You know the cottage readers, right? This is where Sue and Mr. Phillotson have shacked up saw that a light was burning in a downstairs room, which he assumed rightly, as it happened, to be hers. 
Jude stepped close to the wall and tapped with his finger on the pane, saying impatiently, Sue! Sue! She must have recognized his voice, for the light disappeared from the apartment, and in a second or two the door was unlocked and opened, and Sue appeared with a candle in her hand. Is it Jude? Yes, it is. My dear, dear cousin, what's the matter? Oh, I am. I couldn't help coming, Sue, said he, sinking down upon the doorstep. I am so wicked, Sue. My heart is nearly broken, and I could not bear my life as it was. So I have been drinking and blaspheming, or next door to it, and saying holy things in disreputable quarters, repeating in idle bravado words which ought never to be uttered but reverently. Oh, do anything with me, Sue. Kill me. I don't care. Only don't hate me and despise me like all the rest of the world. You are ill, poor dear. No, I won't despise you. Of course I won't. Come in and rest and let me see what I can do for you. Now lean on me and don't mind. With one hand holding the candle and the other supporting him, she led him indoors and placed him in the only easy chair the meagerly furnished house afforded, stretching his feet upon another and pulling off his boots. Jude, now getting towards his sober senses, could only say, Dear, dear Sue, in a voice broken by grief and contrition. Come on, Jude! Get it together. Come on. Come on, Jude. Get it together, Jude. I just, I got, I got Philly there for a second. A little bit Philly. Come on, Jude. We'll be back in a minute on Obscure. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Who doesn't love Gilbert Gottfried? Answer nobody. You love him. I'm telling you who you love, and it's Gilbert Gottfried. You've known him forever. I mean, he was in Aladdin and Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Problem Child. He was the original Aflac duck. And he's just one of the funniest stand-up comedians that there has ever been. And he's got a show called Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. And he brings celebrities on, okay? Weird Al, Judd Apatow, Ira Glass. They talk about show business, legends, old horror movies, folklore, dirty jokes, the aristocrats. Nobody was funnier in the aristocrats than Gilbert Gottfried. This week on Gilbert's show, they have a really special new episode with Alan Alda, who's also one of my favorites from forever. You know, MASH, The West Wing, The Aviator. I mean, he's been in a million things. He's a legend. 
Alan's a legend. I say Alan like I know him. I've never met him. You don't want to miss this episode. Other recent guests include Rosanna Arquette, Patton Oswalt, Peter Fonda, and Sid and Marty Croft, who if you don't know, you should. Check out new episodes of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast every Monday wherever you listen, like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Hi, Michael Ian Black here. And before the break, Jude had gone to Sue's house, drunk and miserable, mostly because he got up uh, at a local bar, made a little bit of a fool of himself. And Jude, Jude, I have said it before, he's a lot like a stand-up comedian. You know, he goes to places where people get drunk and makes a fool out of himself. So before we go on reading, here is a conversation I had with an actual stand-up comedian who, who has never made a fool of himself, to my knowledge, Guy Branham. Guy is the creator and host of Talk Show, The Game Show, which was on True TV. He was on Chelsea Lately, The Mindy Project, and he just wrote a book, My Life as a Goddess, a Memoir Through Unpopular Culture. Have you ever read Jude the Obscure? I haven't. Yeah, nobody I know has. I hadn't before I started doing a <laughs> podcast about it. I still haven't. I'm working my way through it. In Jude... Uh, Jude Fowley, who is our, our tragic hero, has spent his life to this point trying to get an education. This is in like 1890 something in England. He's having no luck. He, he has taught himself much. He's kind of self-taught. He's learned Latin and he's learned Greek and he's studied the Old Testament. And, and, but none of it is kind of opening the doors that he wants opened. And so he, well, one night, uh, uh, lovelorn and heartsick and frustrated, he goes to a bar and uh, where there's just a, a cast of bar flies. And on a dare, he starts reciting some liturgical something or another in Latin, kind of to show off. And then he feels utter contempt for himself for doing so and for the people who are applauding him and buying him drinks because they wouldn't know latin if it if it slapped him upside the head uh and 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 so it called to mind i think a common thing with comedians which is you get up and or you watch other people and maybe they're maybe these other people are killing and you're like but that's just hack shit and you feel contempt for the people that you're supposed to win over have you ever had that oh god yes (laughs) the wonderful thing is is that every stand-up comedian have stuff in their repertoire that is too pandering, but they've got it. Like um, <laughs> they've got it because they know they're going to need it sometimes. And there have definitely been times when I have delivered stuff to an audience and been so sad that, <laughs> that it worked. Like that. <laughs> yes, but also I did it. You know, I completely <laughs> did it because um, you want the uh, attention and response and. You know, I think it's terrible comedians who are too likely to be like, oh, I'm so much better than my audience. Like, I I do think there's something really tacky and and gross about that. Mm -hmm. I think it's always your job to be entertaining and trying to engage with the people where they are. But I've also been at a club in Naples, Florida, or um, you know, somewhere in the Central Valley of California, where it's just like, oh my God, I thought I spent I, all of my life choices I thought were to keep me from having to be around people like this. Have brought you directly um, into their now, laps. Exactly. What can you share with us of your material that you find irredeemable that you still do? Okay. (laughs) So, I have a joke about the Tea Party movement, Uh which is, first of all, solidly dated by this point in time. Solidly dated. Um, And the thing is, is that the second half of the joke is like a joke that I like solidly enjoy at the expense of libertarians. Uh-huh. Libertarians are essentially saying, hey, wouldn't it be cool if no one were in charge? Uh, and I cannot respect a political philosophy that is also the plot of Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. <laughs> like, that That's a good joke. It doesn't work. It doesn't work sometimes. I see. I but, think it's a good joke. And I've never even seen Don't Tell uh, Mom the Babysitter's Dead. And I know that joke works. <laughs> But the thing is, is before I say that part, I say, first of all, teabagging isn't a political movement. It's a beautiful expression of love <laughs> between that back and a man's face. Yep. And that is 
just the hackest. Yep. It's like the whole tea party to tea bagging thing is just like a hack joke from 2012 or 2010 <laughs> or something like that. Every time I do that, I am just weary with myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you unfurl it, and then you're like, oh, fuck, here it is. What do you think, guys? Because it's also that thing of, like, an audience will go with you in a good direction or in a bad direction. Mm. And when, when you willfully take them along the bad, hack, pandering path, you're turning them into a worse audience, which is degrading to both of you. <laughs> Um, but, but the other thing that's interesting about what you were describing from Jude the Obscure is sort of this thing of the audience wanting to understand something that they don't. And I think there's something truly horrifying about sort of like the political pandering material you hear sometimes that makes, where somebody's saying absolutely nothing, but at the end, everybody gets to clap and feel like they've done something noble. Um, <laughs> and I do feel like that is one of the grossest types of comedy. I've been trying to build my entire act around that sensation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, you, you have a very distinguished and respectable career, and I think it would be perfectly valid for you to be like, I, I never have to put in the work to make someone laugh again. Why don't I just make like blandly appealing liberal comments and then have like out warm adoration wash over me? That's pretty good. I mean, what I do is I put in a lot of effort these days to make people mildly laugh. And it seems like the more work I put into it, the more mild the response. I've always been obsessed with the idea that if I, so I started stand-up in, in San Francisco, and I always say if I ever move back to San Francisco, I have to become a humorist. <laughs> um, and there's always, like, that danger of just being somebody whose business is creating mild laughter. Oh. Or uh, our friend, a part of Sherlock, she had, like, the best line ever. She said, the danger of living in New York is becoming a smart comedian. Mm. And... <laughs> I had never thought about it before, but New York is like constantly putting you in these shows that are setting you up to make sort of self-congratulatory, <laughs> like, um, you know, witticisms or observations and then an audience of Upper West Side people will treat you like a god. It's like live action NPR. Oh, that's all I want. That's all I want. I don't need maturity. I don't need respect. I just need an easy gig. I just need showing up someplace and making 30 grand for reading chapter four. That's what I need. <laughs> and that's essentially what Jude was doing and hating himself for doing it because he was, he was just reciting words from a page that he had memorized. That's all I want. That's all I want. And he got a free, he got a free drink out of the deal. So funny. It's essentially like the 19th century equivalent of a drag performance. Yeah. Just using somebody else's words for entertainment. <laughs> yeah, with I mean without any of the artistry. I mean there is artistry in drag but it's not it's not so much in the singing and the performing part. It's you know it's the other stuff. It's the stuff all around it. Well, I think there is something really interesting and wonderful about reinterpreting something through lip sync. That's an, in lip sync, but also in in comedy there is the interesting dynamic that like since Carlin and the 60s there and, and prior there's been this real orientation of comedy towards like honest expression of your experience and that is of course the comedy that I like uh, but there's also weird artistry in the restating of a street joke or whatever mm. you know like mm -hmm. there are comedy traditions where theft of material and, and doing somebody else's material is considered an homage well Gilbert Gottfried, to me, I don't know how much of what he does is street jokes or jokes that he's written. They all feel like street jokes, but he, yeah. he nobody makes me laugh harder than that guy. He is so funny to me in just his uncompromising yeah. commitment to whatever that thing is. It just makes me laugh. Yeah, I mean, that's like at the end of the day, the salesmanship is, is <laughs> what you show up for. Yeah. You know, are they selling it to you? Yeah. That's I maybe that's maybe that's the thing I'm looking to eliminate all the salesmanship. <laughs> Guy, I appreciate it so much. 
for taking the time. Uh, this, is so, this is lovely, Michael. Nice to talk to you. You too. Thank you, Guy. I really appreciate it. Well, now that we know what kind of comic Jude is, well, let's continue reading. We're in chapter seven. And when we left off, Jude had gone to Sue's house and he's all pathetic, uh, although she is being very hospitable the way you would be if your cousin showed up at your doorstep drunk and miserable, unless he does that a lot. And in which case you might be like, Jude, we've been through this before and I'm calling the fucking cops. All right, let's go on. She asked him if he wanted anything to eat, but he shook his head. Then, I mean, he should eat. He's only eating a biscuit, guys. I know Sue, you know, doesn't have a lot of money, but Jude, you know, have a bowl of cornflakes. Do some damn thing. Then telling him to go to sleep and that she would come down early in the morning and get him some breakfast, she bade him good night and ascended the stairs. Almost immediately, he fell into a heavy slumber and did not wake till dawn. At first, he did not know where he was, but by degrees, his situation cleared to him, and he beheld it in all the ghastliness of a right mind. She knew the worst of him, the very worst. How could he face her now? She would soon be coming down to see about breakfast, as she had said, and there would he be in all his shame confronting her. He could not bear the thought. And softly drawing on his boots and taking his hat from the nail on which she had hung it, he slipped noiselessly out of the house. I'm going to go on to one more paragraph. I'm in, I mean, I'm, I'm in it now, you know, I'm in it and I'm worried about Jude and I, I empathize with Jude and he, the worst of it, 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 Jude, all you did is get drunk and say some prayers in a bar. Don't you think Jesus would have done the same? Jesus going about with, with all the dregs of the earth, speaking his mind wherever he saw fit. Give yourself a break, kid. Give yourself a break. His fixed idea was to get away to some obscure spot and hide and perhaps pray. And the only spot which occurred to him was Mary Green. He called at his lodging in Christminster, where he found awaiting him a note of dismissal from his employer. So he just got fired for not showing up. Yeah, it makes sense. And having packed up, he turned his back upon the city that had been such a thorn in his side and struck southward into Wessex. He had no money left in his pocket. His small savings deposited at one of the banks in Christminster, having fortunately been left untouched. To get to Marygreen, therefore, his only course was walking, and the distance being nearly twenty miles, he had ample time to complete on the way the sobering process begun in him. Well, Jude has now turned his back on Christminster, dear readers, after all of that. After all of that, one night of drinking has turned him right around. It broke him, that city. It broke him good. Just like Nicolas Cage in leaving Las Vegas. Except Nicolas Cage goes to Las Vegas to drink himself to death. He does not go there to get an education. Yet Nicolas Cage finds an education in Las Vegas, just as Jude has found himself in education there at Cheers, or the Mammoth slash Eugene O'Neill version of Cheers, in which no good comes from the drink, but a recognition does kindle up the recognition of our own worst selves. And he says to Sue, you have seen my worst. Oh, he doesn't say, but he's thinking it. She has seen his worst self. And we, the reader, know his worst self isn't so bad. We know Jude's heart for what it is. A good, rich, wanting heart. Yet in the mores of his day, it is a heart that beats outside of the common rhythm. And so he is left now with his tail tucked between his legs, returning home, if it can even be called home, to Mary Green, that obscure spot in Wessex from where he began so many pages and years ago. Well, what do we think of Jude? I mean, what do we think of the course his life has taken? 
Is he going to return to that bakery? Well, the bakery's now been sold. I mean, he has nothing at Mary Green. His aunt is retired. The bakery is sold. He has no home to go to. Go to. He's got no place. He's got nothing. So he's going back to the place where he began, 20 miles away, a mere 20 miles, but it may as well be an ocean away. It's depressing. It's sobering. And that is exactly what it said, the sobering process that had begun. And for what? For want of a master to open the door and usher him inside. It is, of course, the church. It is the church, that institution of welcoming that has left him outside of its doors. He one of the great students that they could ever hope to have. And they do not recognize him for who he is. He is the faithful, and yet his faith is constantly being tested by banana peels. This last banana peel dunked in scotch whiskey, but a banana peel nonetheless. We'll pick it up again next time on another sobering, yet thrilling, episode of Obscure from the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. I am Michael Ian Black, and until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. To subscribe and get more information, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nezea. Spanish Aki Presents. <laughs>